Hey there, friends. Welcome back to the Bible in Life podcast. My name is John Whitaker. I am the host of the Bible in Life, and I am super grateful for you and glad that you're joining me here on this episode of the Bible in Life. One of the core convictions that drives me here on the Bible in Life is that the Bible has the best wisdom for life, that it accords with reality, that it's tells the way the world really is and the way you and I are really designed to function, that it's true in that deep, deepest sense that it's like, this is the way things really are. And because of that, because the Bible is true in that sense, because the Bible has the best wisdom for life, our aim and our goal is to help uh, people like you, people like me, live in sync with the Bible because that's living in sync with reality. And so when I say that uh, the goal of the Bible in life is to teach the Bible in the language of everyday life, in the context of everyday life, so that we can live it out and follow Jesus right in the midst of our everyday life, that's what I'm getting at, that I believe Living according to the wisdom of Scripture in the way of Jesus is living the way we were designed to function, and that's good for us. And so that's what we're all about here on The Bible and Life, and that's what drives me to keep teaching the Bible is that conviction and that belief. So thanks for being here. Glad you're joining me on this episode Before we jump into the specific topic on this episode, just want to restate what I said on last week's episode, and that is I am lining out the next several months of podcast series and podcast episodes. I got a handful of ideas and topics that I think would be useful, but I would love to hear what you feel like would be most helpful to you. So if there's a Bible book, a Bible passage, a Bible question, if there's a theology issue or some Christian living question that you've always wondered, uh, just something you're wrestling with, uh, something that has just recently come up, man, shoot me an email at john at johnwhitaker.net. Let me know what uh, you're wrestling with, and I will put that on the list and see if I can't schedule that into the next several months worth of podcast episodes. Heard from a few people last week on some topics and some questions. I would love to hear from more of you if there's something you would love to see me cover here on The Bible in Life. All right, let's jump into the topic for this week. And I want to do something just a little bit different. Um, I think it'll be valuable and helpful, but it's a little different. And one of the things that's easy for us to neglect or easy for us to uh, take for granted is how unique the Bible is in that it's actually also a history book. Not a history book in the sense of, you know, telling us what happened in history per se, but that it's a book that's rooted in the real world, in history, in real times, in real places. It's easy for us to overlook that, or it's easy for us to take that for granted. I know plenty of people who have never really thought about their Bible that way. They read the Bible primarily as devotional literature, or they read it as like rules from God on how to live their life. I've had plenty of conversations, even mentored and discipled people where that was their initial impression of the Bible. Like, this is a religious book. I get religious um, rules from it. I get um, religious inspiration from it, and they read it from that way. And that's not necessarily wrong. It's just incomplete. 
Um, because the nature of the Bible is that it's also a book of history. It tells what happened in the real world and has all sorts of historical references in it. And here's what's fascinating about that, that the Bible stands alone in uh, the world's sacred texts in this regard. Most other religious books out there, most other sacred scriptures from other religions, they are more just inspirational literature. They are more just rules for how to do life. Very rarely do they ever cross over into historical narrative and historical references. Um, Maybe you'll find bits and pieces of that, but for the most part, what you get are wise sayings or wisdom for, you know, uh, life from the context of their religion. And you'll get really one other religious book that um, claims to be historical. Um, that's the Book of Mormon. The problem is it's history is clearly anachronistic and fabricated. No ancient city, no people group, no finds, none of that mentioned in the Book of Mormon have ever been found. And so it's, it attempts to be historical. It just is errant history. Uh, but that's not true with the Bible. So here's the Bible standing alone among the world's uh, sacred scriptures as this book that claims to be obviously a religious book, but also a history book, and it's loaded with history. And, and so that invites us to say, well, is it historically reliable? And the fascinating thing is how much um, of the, the historical people and places and events in the Bible have actually uh, been verified and validated. And um, that makes the Bible unique. And so when we read the Bible, we know, if we've read it, that there's history within it. And what I want to encourage you in is that it's good history. It's reliable history. Um, I just finished reading another, I love this subject, and so I frequently read on it. I just finished reading Titus Kennedy's new book entitled Unearthing the Bible, 101 Archaeological Discoveries that bring the Bible to life. And that's one of the things archaeology does. It, it validates and verifies some of the history of the Bible, but it also sheds light on the culture and the history of the Bible. And so Titus Kennedy in this book, real simple read, he just picks out 101 key finds. There's a picture, there's a little bit of background to the find, and then there's the significance of the find. It's a simple little read. I'll actually put a link to the book down in the notes below so you can check it out if that sounds like something you'd be interested in. Um, but I love that topic because there has been so much wealth of data found that supports the history of the Bible from both the Old and the New Testament, which is amazing. When you think how old the Old Testament is, and they find uh, records of cities, they find records of place names, not only that, specific people, um, some of whom are major, obviously, like you read in the Bible of some of the specific rulers or some of the specific people groups, right? And they have archaeology that supports some of that sort of stuff. Uh, specific kings and specific events, for, for example, 
Um, the Moabite stone, if you just Google the Moabite stone, it actually tells uh, the same story as that found in 2 Kings chapter 3. The story of King Misha of Moab's rebellion. But this is Misha's account of that event. And so it confirms the event, confirms the existence of King Misha. There's all sorts of these kinds of things throughout biblical history. Some of the events are so specific that it helps us actually date them. For example, in uh, Acts chapter 18, we have mentioned that Paul was brought before the proconsul of Achaia, and the proconsul's name there in Acts 18 is Gallio. Well, we know from an inscription found at Delphi exactly when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia. He was proconsul for only one year. He didn't like the city of Corinth, and so he gave up his post after a year. And he was proconsul from June of 51 to June of 52. So for just a one-year period, he was the proconsul. Well, that helps date the chronology of the book of Acts and of Paul's life, right? Um, some of the finds of specific individual are like minor players um, that are like uh, associates of kings or scribes in the Old Testament, and they found like little clay impressions from their signet rings, what are called bulla of these um, these minor players in the biblical story, but they their bulla, their impressions from their signet ring have survived. It's just fascinating how much of that there is. Cities and places um, and battles and um, all sorts of things. And Sometimes the finds of archaeology uh, help sort out like perplexities in the biblical account or questions where it's like, wait a second, well, that doesn't quite make sense. A well-known example of that uh, comes from the book of Daniel, where um, at the time of the end of the Babylonian Empire, there in the book of Daniel, you have mention of King Belshazzar in Babylon throwing a feast when the Persians come and take over the city of Babylon, and that's the fall of Babylon. Well, scholars and historians used to scratch their head. Some who were more skeptical would point a finger at the Bible and say, look, here it is. It's wrong, right? And we just didn't really understand until all of a sudden uh, we've found a particular inscription um, about Nabonidus, who was the one that historians knew was the king at the time of that. So where did Belshazzar fit into all of this? Well, then we found this inscription from uh, Nabonidus, and all of a sudden, oh, things fell into place, and the puzzle pieces started to make sense. Nabonidus was an uh, ardent worshiper of Marduk, the moon god, and for a large part of the latter bit of his reign, he was miles and miles away from Babylon, out in the desert on a pilgrimage, worshiping Marduk. And so he left the kingdom in charge of his son, Belshazzar. That's why Belshazzar could only offer to Daniel, when he offers him the next highest place in the kingdom in the book of Daniel, he offers him the third place. Why did he only offer Daniel the third place? Well, because he was in the second place and his father, Nabonidus, was in first place. Um, and so now a, a perplexity, something that didn't make sense in the biblical text, all of a sudden begins to make a whole lot of sense. And we find that the Bible's history is remarkably accurate and reliable. 
And this kind of thing happens over and over again in the biblical text. Another example from the New Testament is the well-known example in Acts chapter 17 when the apostle Paul is in Thessalonica and the leaders of the city there are called polytarchs in Greek. And the word polytarch comes from two Greek words, polis, city, and arche, ruler. And it just means city ruler. And it was like, well, why such a generic name for the city rulers? Why just call them city rulers? And again, those who were critical or skeptical of the Bible, they were like, ah, Luke, whoever wrote this, right, clearly didn't know what the city rulers were called. And so just made up a generic title. And that all sounded well and good until all of a sudden archaeologists uncovered the Polytarch inscriptions and realized, oh, there actually were the city rulers in Thessalonica and a few of the surrounding cities around Thessalonica where that's what they, that was the title for the city leaders, Polytarchs, city rulers. They just gave them that generic title. And uh, Luke, the author of Acts, was incredibly accurate, not making a mistake. And this sort of stuff just happens all over the place. And again, it would be easy to neglect this or to take this for granted, but we shouldn't take it for granted. We're talking about 2,000 years ago for the New Testament, 3,500 years ago or 3,000 years ago for the Old Testament, um, and the amount of data that has been found with as limited as amount of archaeological work has been done is just surprising and shocking, and it reminds us that the Bible is good history. It's historically reliable. As one archaeologist has said, a Jewish archaeologist uh, from a number of years ago, he was like, it can be stated matter-of-factly that no find of archaeology has ever controverted a biblical statement. Now, there's things we don't know. There's things we haven't discovered. There's question marks that we... Uh, that we haven't figured out because we don't have the data, but no find of archaeology has actually ever gone against what the Bible says. It's good history. Um, sometimes what we find actually refutes like critical historians' view of the Bible. It used to be uh, commonly believed that uh, King David of the Old Testament was just a myth made up by later Jews to kind of strengthen, you know, give them a strong figure from their past to kind of help bolster this newfound kingdom of Israel. <clears throat> that was kind of a common critical historical approach to it. And that was all well and good until 1992 when archaeologists digging at Dan found an inscription that referred to the house of David. Um, and that was so contrary to what critical historians uh, expected and assumed that um, they just immediately assumed it was a forgery. But uh, uh, much investigation, much work determined, no, indeed, this is authentic, it's not a forgery. And then since then, there's been other inscriptions that have been found that refer to the house of David. So all of a sudden, oh, David was a real person in the Old Testament. And beyond just... Um, supporting the history of the Bible and helping us realize that when we read the Bible, we're reading reliable history, which is useful. Here's what it also reminds us as those that want to follow Jesus and learn from the wisdom of the Bible. It reminds us that God acted 
in the real world, in space and time history, in real places, in the lives of real people. When we read, whether the Old Testament or the New Testament, we're talking about real times, real cultures, real people, real events, real places where the God of the universe acted in history in this world, where the God of the, the, the creator God revealed himself in history, in the real world, that's the way God has operated. And maybe if you were God or I were God, we would think there's a better way to reveal yourself. Maybe we would think, just give us the rules, just give us, you know, a systematic theology textbook, right? But that's not how God chose to do it. Uh, the one true God chose to reveal himself in the real world through real people. And that, that, is a blessing that's also a challenge. Um, we have to learn some things about the culture and about the history and about these places. We have to learn some things about the maps and uh, the cultural background, like why was this said? Why was this an issue? Well, what what kind of pagan god is that? And why is there that law given in the Torah? And all of that's rooted in the, the real world of time and space. And the more we understand that world, the more uh, what the Bible is saying pops off the page, becomes three-dimensional, and all of a sudden we realize this is the way God works. God works in the lives of real people, drawing them to himself, leading them to faith in him, leading them to trust him. And that's the way God chose to to redeem and restore this world. He didn't choose to do it from standing afar, just bow, you know, barking out orders from his ivory palace in the sky as God. He chose to do it by entering into the world and working with real people in real times and in real cultures with real questions. And they had their own backgrounds. They had their own presuppositions about God and about the world. They had their own presuppositions about the way things should operate. And God was willing to enter into those real places and work with them where they were at to draw them to himself. That's why sometimes it can feel so odd to us. That's why I like to say reading the Bible is like entering into taking a you know, foreign cross-cultural trip in a time machine. That's what we're doing when we read the scriptures. And when we study the archaeology, it bolsters our confidence in this text because it reminds us that we're reading good, reliable history. And it also helps us understand the culture of the world we're entering into and how things were done so that we can actually understand the scriptures a whole lot more. And as I said, I love that kind of stuff. I love the fact that we, we've actually found the ration tablets of King Jehoiachin that's mentioned in the book of 2 Kings. I love the fact that we have found uh, clay bulla for uh, members of the royal court of King Zedekiah. Or um, there's some debate about it, but we might actually have the bulla, the impression from the signet ring of Jeremiah's scribe. 
uh, Barak. Uh, we have impressions from the signet ring of King Hezekiah of the Old Testament. Love that sort of stuff. That we're, we're dealing with real people in real places. And so if that stuff is fascinating to you, or if you're just like, I want to know more about that, this book by Titus Kennedy is a good place to start. There's plenty of stuff on it, but this one has pictures. It's really an easy read. It's the kind of stuff where you're like, oh, interesting, right? And so Unearthing the Bible by Titus Kennedy might be a good place for you to jump in and start again. I'll put a link to that down in the notes below if that sounds like something that you would like to check out. All right. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Bible and Life podcast. The Bible and Life is a crowdfunded, listener-supported podcast and online ministry. And if you are one of the supporters, thanks a ton for your support. If you want to join the team of supporters, you can do so at johnwhitaker.net. Click the Give button. That'll take you to a donation page in Concert with World Family Mission, where you can set up a a one-time or a monthly recurring donation. Thanks so much for your prayers. Thanks so much for your support. May God bless you as you walk with him in your own real world right now in this time and place where the God of history, the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the God of, of John and Paul and Peter, where God works in history, may he work in your history to help you become more and more like Jesus.